The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking this morning at Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. The year was 2007. It was the fall. I can remember it well. I was nine years into a three-year master's degree with still a bit of road yet to travel, but was coming to the end of that journey at least a couple of years down the road. I was pastoring full-time and, and doing this sort of in free time, and the way it worked back in, in, at least in my experience, was you know I had classes where I would go to Columbia, Columbia Biblical Seminary, and spend a week or two all day every day in class, having assignments before and assignments after uh, to complete the work. And I was, at this point in my journey, fairly weary of the whole process and ready to be done with it. And uh, I can remember very vividly in the fall going to Columbia and uh, arriving for this class that I was required to take in order to graduate. The class was called Transformational Bible Teaching. I've been pastoring as a lead pastor for seven years at that point, and I was looking at the syllabus and the curriculum. It was a, a basic course on how to develop a Bible study. And I had, frankly, just a rotten attitude about the whole thing. I, uh, I, I had all this stuff going on in my mind, like, uh, this is a waste of my time. Uh, I know how to create a Bible study. I've been preaching sermons for quite some time now, every week, and the professor was someone I'd never heard of, Dr. Cheryl Schiffman was her name, and uh, I remember sitting in that class on the, the first day of that, uh, which is the worst attitude ever, like, God, why am I here, and this is a waste of time, I could be doing something really productive instead. That week actually turned out to be one of the best weeks of seminary that I experienced my entire, well, I won't tell you how many year journey. Dr. Cheryl Schiffman turned out to be probably the most impactful seminary professor that I encountered in my journey in all of those years. She was a dear woman who lived in Columbia, had taught uh, a Bible study, had many advanced degrees, but taught God's Word faithfully in her church for many, many years in a Sunday school class for ladies. She had a, she had a, she had a, uh, an infectious love for the Word of God. She was one of those people that you just couldn't be around without that sort of spilling over onto you and somehow you getting wet with it yourself. Every time she opened her mouth, you just got it. And I've never forgotten her or that class. Of all the classes that I've taken, that I took in my seminary education, I still use the, the material from that class quite regularly here in the life of our church. But I remember in that class, early on in the week, she gave us a definition for teaching in a definition for learning because if you're going to figure out how to create and teach the Bible, you have to know what teaching is and what learning is. And while there are many definitions for these things, hers were, one, were definitions I hadn't heard before. According to Dr. Schiffman, she said learning is this. She said learning is a change in behavior that is consistent over time. Now when I thought of learning, that wasn't anywhere close to what I would have given as a definition. A change in behavior that's consistent over time. 
And then she defined teaching this way. She said, teaching then is the process of arranging instructional conditions so that learners are most likely to learn. Or if you want to combine them, teaching is the process of arranging instructional conditions so that learners are most likely to have a change in behavior that's consistent over time. I like those definitions. And as we make our way back to Luke chapter 9, we drop sort of into the life and ministry of Jesus, and we find the apostles, the 12, in his classroom. And this is precisely what he's doing in their lives. He is arranging all of the conditions around them in such a way that they'll learn, that their lives will be transformed and changed, that their behavior will be radically changed, that they'll be different men, that they'll be transformed. And for quite some time, he's been arranging these instructional conditions. Up to this point, he's been primarily instructing them verbally. They've been hearing him teach. He's been saying to them propositional truths that they needed to hear and that intellectually they needed to embrace. But he hasn't been just doing that. He's also been demonstrating for them by his own life what it looks like to live out the things that he's teaching. So they've heard it from his voice, and they've now seen it in his life, but he knows that they haven't learned it yet. And so in Luke chapter 9, we, he transitions them from simply listening to what he's saying and observing what he's doing to launching them out into a whole sort of experience of experiential learning. Now they've moved from listening and observing to having to go out and practice what it is that they've heard and seen. So in the beginning of chapter 9, we looked at this last week, Jesus sends these men out. He calls them to himself. He splits them up in groups of two, and he sends them out for the very first time on their own to do ministry by themselves, and he stays behind on purpose. Not only does he send them out for the first time by themselves, but he instructs them very clearly, don't take anything with you. The clothes on your back, that's what you carry. No extra food, no extra clothing, no bag to carry your stuff with, no hotel reservations, nothing you just launch out and do ministry and go town to town and when somebody opens their home to you, you go into their home and you stay there until you're ready to leave the town and then you leave that home and go to the next place and if somebody doesn't welcome you and a town doesn't welcome you then you kick the dust off of your shoes and you move on to somewhere else it was all the instruction they had and no doubt they were terrified and anxious They'd never done anything like this before. They'd heard, and they had seen, but they had never done. And their learning was not going to be complete until they've done what they've heard and what they've seen. You know that in your life, and I know that in my life, right? It's one thing to embrace things propositionally and to say, yes, I believe X, Y, or Z, but it's a whole different thing when life brings circumstances into your, your way that force you into a situation where you now have to put into practice what it is you say that you believe. And it's the experiential that really reveals to us whether we've learned or not. And Jesus knows that. And so he sends these men out to do these very things, an internship, if you will. We pick up in verse 10 of Luke chapter 9 where they've they just returned from this, this mission trip, this internship. And Jesus gives them almost, almost immediately sort of an exam, if you will, to sort of see if they've learned the things that he's intended we're going to find that they hadn't fully learned. We're going to find that they still had some work to do. Before we get into the narrative, I do want to back up to verses 7 through 9 in chapter 9, just to, to say a word or two about them, because we did not deal with that last week, and I just want to 
uh, I'll, uh, I'll hear about it from you if I skip verses. I know that, right? In verse 7 of chapter 9, Luke inserts this little aside between the sending out of the disciples on this internship to their return. There's this little piece in between. And he gives it to us for a reason. He says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Quite simply, Luke includes this for a very important reason. Herod is, is he's heard the word of what Jesus has been doing, and no doubt the word of what the apostles did in their, their mission trip had, had sort of made its way up to the highest levels of authority in the country. Herod had found out, and he's perplexed. He's wondering who these people are. Particularly, he's wondering who Jesus is. And he's particularly concerned because people are, are conjecturing all sorts of things. They're saying, well, he's one of the Old Testament prophets that's come back, which Herod probably wouldn't be too bothered by that. Some are saying he's Elijah the prophet, more particularly. But what really is concerning to Herod is that some people are saying he's John the Baptist. And he's concerned about that because he's just been responsible for chopping off John's head to please his wife, his evil wife, his wicked wife. And the last thing in the world he wants is for John the Baptist to show back up because he knows if somehow John comes out of the grave, he's, he's in trouble. So he's worried. But beyond that, like any political leader, he doesn't want anybody to, to compete with him for power over people. He doesn't want any competition for the hearts and the minds of the people he rules. And so he's concerned about what's going on. But that's not Luke's concern. That's Herod's concern. Why does Luke include this? Well, the answer is found in verse, in verse 9. What is the question that Herod is asking? He's asking the question, who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is this man? If you were to look down your page at verse 18, right after the narrative that we look at this morning, we're told this. Now it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? This question, who is Jesus, is flowing all throughout Luke's gospel. We've seen this over and over and over again. In chapter 5, verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, who is this man that speaks blasphemies? Who is this man who claims to be able to forgive sins? In chapter 7, John the Baptist calls his disciples and sends them to Jesus. And the question they have on their mind is, who are you? Are you the one that was to come, or should we be looking for someone else? And then in chapter 7, verse 49, the people who were at the table with Jesus began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then in chapter 8, verse 25, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, after a storm has broken out and Jesus has awakened in the middle of it and calmed the storm with a word, the disciples are afraid and they marveled and they're saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? This is the question that's being asked. And Luke is a, an investigator who is wanting us, as we read his gospel, to over and over again ask that question, who is this man? Who is he? And he wants to show us, and he wants to show Theophilus, the man to whom he originally wrote this, and to anybody who would read it, he wants to make the case that is incontrovertible evidence that the answer to the question is, he is God. 
That there's no other answer to the question. He's God. Who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Who can speak to a storm and it calm immediately? Only God can do that. Who can do what he does on this particular day in the hill country of Galilee? It's something only God could do. There's no other rational answer to the question. And so Luke wants us to be asking that as we look at verse 10. We're told, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. We don't know how long the apostles were away on this particular trip. We don't get those details in any of the Gospels. We're just told that when they returned, they came back to Jesus, and it's, a, it's apparent that they had pre-planned some sort of a, a return time and return place because they all seemed to be together at the same time. It's quite likely that this would have been Capernaum, but we're not... 100% sure of that. And we don't know how long it's been. But what we do know is that they come back and they are they're overflowed with excitement and joy. They are they are they they just are are wide-eyed just spilling out to Jesus all the things that had happened on this mission trip that they'd been sent on. This thing that they'd been launched into with fear and anxiety. They've come back and no doubt they're telling him story after story after story after story of how God has provided for them every step along the way. How even though they went with no food, they never went hungry. How even though they, they, they didn't have extra clothing, they never went cold and they never got too hot. Even though they had no hotel reservations, everywhere they went, somebody somewhere seemed to open the door and welcome them in and give them a warm meal. Stories about the preaching that they did and the impact that it had and the lives that were transformed and the miracles that they were able to perform by his power, the healings that they were able to do. It must have been a glorious sort of a meeting of them reporting, and I'm sure it brought great joy to the heart of Christ. But beyond this, Matthew tells us something else that happens almost simultaneously. In Matthew 14, verse 12, he tells us this, and the disciples, this is Jesus' disciples, came, excuse me, this is John's disciples, came and took the body, this is of John the Baptist, and they buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This all corresponds sort of uh, chronologically with Herod's killing of John. And so just as if you can imagine in your mind, just as the apostles are coming back, and they're, and they're overflowing with joy at all that's happened on the ministry field, at the same time, the disciples of John show up, and they report back to Jesus that his dear friend, his relative, his forerunner, John has been killed. He's had his head lopped off. And so for Jesus, we have both joy and grief sort of flooding in at the same time. And if that isn't enough, there's, as always, there's this crowd that is, that is gathered around and is pressing in to them. And so you've got the disciples coming back, you've got this terrible news of John's death, and you've got this crowd that is just that it just is relentlessly pushing in with all of its needs and all of the things that, 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 that comes with just a crowd filled with needy and desperate people. And so we're told by the other gospel writers that Jesus takes his men onto a boat with the intention of going away on some sort of a retreat, if you will. He wants to get away from the crowd. He needs some solitude to grieve. He and the 12 need some, some time together to be able to sort of debrief the whole uh, ministry event that they had just encountered. And, uh, and beyond all of that, they're all exhausted and need rest. And so Jesus tells them to get in a boat and to head across the Sea of Galilee. 
Jesus understood the value and the necessity of occasionally getting away to rest. He gave himself to ministry and he worked hard at it, literally to the point of exhaustion, time and time again. But if you follow his life and his ministry, you know that he does that time and time again. And then he intentionally withdraws himself and he gets away. And he gets some time alone. He knew that he needed time alone. He knew he needed time away from the work of the ministry. He needed time for prayer and time for reflection. He needed time for rest and he needed time for refreshment. And he needed time for the enjoyment of friendship. All of the things that every human being needs, Christ and his humanity needed. He needed. J.C. Ryle, great Anglican bishop, said this. He said, the lesson is one which many Christians would do well to remember. Occasional retirement, self-inquiry, meditation, and secret communion, communion with God are absolutely essential to spiritual health. The man who neglects them in, is in great danger of a fall. To be always preaching, teaching, speaking, writing, and working public works is unquestionably a sign of zeal, but it's not always a sign of zeal according to knowledge. In fact, it often leads to troubling consequences. We must make time occasionally for sitting down and calmly looking within, examining how matters stand between ourselves and Christ. The admission of the practice, he says, is the true cause of many a backsliding which shocks the church and gives occasion for the world to blaspheme. It's an important reminder for all the workaholics among us, right? And so they get away, and at least in part, rest as part of the equation. So they're at Capernaum, and they head toward Bethsaida. It's not, we're not sure. There's a big argument theologically about where this location is. You can sort of trace that on your own. But it's a good plan, and it's a good, it's a good idea. The problem is they're in for a surprise. Verse 11 tells us there's an unexpected interruption that comes. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. The very crowds that they were trying to escape in order to gain some solitude, did you catch what they did? They booked it around the sea and beat them to the other side is what they did. Somehow they found out where the retreat location was, and they booked it. Mark 6, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So much for solitude, right? So much for rest. So much for time to debrief. Their plans are absolutely blown up by this unexpected interruption. This is not at all what Jesus or the apostles had in mind when they set out on the boat. There's going to be no rest. There's going to be no solitude. There's going to be no further conversation or teaching. They've now got to deal with a large and persistent and needy crowd. The same crowd they're trying to get away from. Have you ever had days like that? Have you ever had days like that where you set out with the best of intentions in the morning and you've got a plan and you've got a purpose? And you've kind of got it all charted out, what's going to take place on that particular day. And you've got all your ducks in a line. And everything is, is, is supposed to go according to your plan, right? And then all of a sudden, you take two steps into your plan, and everything goes haywire. You're, you're, you're fraught, your life is fraught with unexpected interruptions by people and by circumstance that you hadn't planned for. 
And as those things are, are happening in your life, you're thinking, this isn't my plan. This isn't what I planned for today. The things that I planned are going to get done because he or she or this is happening. Am I the only one in the room who understands this? I sure have. I know what that's like. I know what that's like this week. And you know what my typical reaction is when that happens to me in my world? It's irritability and agitation. Am I the only one of that? This, this Thursday of this week, I had set aside a three-hour window in the afternoon to, to prepare for this morning, to do some, some sermon work. Uh, the, early in the week, had been busy, and so I had set this time aside. I was looking forward to it, and I planned to do it here at the office, and I came in. And the moment I sat down, it was one interruption after the other after the other, things that I hadn't planned. Not bad things, just things that I hadn't planned. And I attended to one, and I attended to the next, and then I went and attended to the next, and all of a sudden, three hours was down to two hours, and two hours was down to one hour. And one hour started shrinking even less. And I found the, the smaller that window of time got, the more irritable I became, and the more agitated I was. You know, I realized that what that is is a real, it's, a, it's really a deep-rooted expression of pride, isn't it? It's this sense that I have the right to plan my own life the way I want it. And nobody, including God, has a right to alter that plan. And when he does, or they do, I have a right to be agitated and irritated. Because after all, I'm sovereign in my world, right? And I get to make the plans. And things are supposed to go according to my desires. Hmm. That was hard to learn this week. If I was the main character in this story, I can tell you in Luke chapter 9, it would have gone completely differently. If I would have got to the other side and the crowd was there, my response to the crowd would have been, what is wrong with you people? Can you not tell we were trying to get away from you? Give us a break, will you? My message to the disciples would have been, boys, back in the boat. Whoever tells this crowd where we're going next is swimming. That is my next thing. <laughs> Praise God Jesus isn't like me, right? Praise God Jesus isn't like me. Oh, that I would be more like him. The mercy and compassion of Jesus is beyond remarkable here. What does he do with this crowd when they show up and blow up his agenda? Or just a few words, he welcomes them. He speaks to them about the kingdom of God, and he cures those who need healing. Is that not remarkable to you? None of my irritability, none of my agitation. He welcomes them. He speaks to them. He ministers to them, and he cures them. I don't think there's any way for us to possibly overestimate the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus for lost and hurting and broken people. He never turns them away. In fact, Matthew uses a word in Jesus' response here. It says he was moved with compassion. It's a word that, that literally means he felt it. He felt it in his gut. When, when he saw crowds of people who were hurting and broken and falling apart, whose lives were crumbling all around him, he, he literally felt it in his gut. He was moved. He couldn't help but do something about it. 
It's even more remarkable if we were to flip over to John's gospel where we would find that the vast majority of this crowd really isn't interested in the message that he has to deliver at all. They're not interested in the gospel. They're really not interested in believing in him. He's going to feed them supper tonight. Tomorrow morning, they're going to be chasing him around trying to get breakfast. And when he doesn't give it to them and begins to teach hard things, you know what they do? They reject him and walk away. And he knows this about them. And yet he welcomes them. And he speaks to them. And he heals them. By the way, he's still like that. He's still like that. He still has tremendous compassion on hurting and broken people. He doesn't turn away people who come to him humbly. Well, there's a problem that's arisen, though, beyond just the fact that the, the, the plans have gotten blown up. There's another problem. The day is beginning to wear away, we're told in verse 12. And the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get provisions for we're here in a desolate place but he said to them you give them something to eat we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless unless we're to go and buy food for all these people <clears throat> you should hear that with a hint of sarcasm for there were about five thousand men and he said to his disciples have them sit down in groups of about 50 each and they did so and had them all sit down so Jesus welcomes them, and he's teaching them, and the day is wearing away. He's just going at it. And one of the disciples is, is, is kind of watching, or some group of them, from the sidelines, and they're, they're, they're saying, okay, Jesus is like most preachers I know. They don't pay attention to their watch, and he's not paying attention to his, and you're thinking the same thing. I'm not paying attention to mine. And they're thinking, we need to remind him that the situation is not good here. Time is ticking and the sun is getting ready to go down, and we're in the middle of nowhere, and there's a bunch of people here, and this is going to be a problem. The people are hungry. 5,000 men were told. Commentators say that would be only the men, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20,000 people, potentially, at this particular event. And the disciples are looking at this picture, and they're realizing, look, we don't even have enough food for ourselves, much less for a crowd this size. What are we going to do? Well, they're examining the situation, and they're not seeing many options. To them, it's clear there's only one thing to do. And so they give Jesus a suggestion. It's actually more of a command. Verse 12, send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside, find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. The disciples make their case to Jesus, and here it is. Jesus, here's what you need to do. I know you're not paying attention. I know you don't realize it's getting late. I know you don't realize that this, this massive mob of people is right on the verge of hangry, and they're going to kill us if we don't have food. But we're telling you this is a problem, and we've got the solution for you. Get rid of these people. Send them away. It's the only sensible thing to do. Where Jesus sees the crowd as an opportunity, the disciples see the crowd as an unwelcomed inconvenience. And their attitude is this, they can provide for themselves. Send them away, it's not our responsibility, it's not our problem. We didn't come here for this. We didn't invite these people to start with. Their poor planning is not our emergency. And you know what the irony of it all is? Literally as they're saying this, what is Jesus doing all around them? We're told that he's curing people. He's literally healing people of diseases, performing miracles 
all around them at the moment while they're wringing their hands over not enough food for dinner. They're like the guy standing in front of Niagara Falls wondering where he can find a drink of water. And there's a principle for us, I think, to pay attention to here. When faced with pressing problems, crushing problems even, we often focus on our lack instead of his sufficiency. And that's exactly what's happening here. All these men can see is what they don't have because they're looking at themselves. And they're completely blind to his sufficiency that's visible all around them. Any other day of the week, if you had asked these men, hey guys, what do you think? Do you think Jesus could provide food to a bunch of people in a crowd who didn't have it? How do you think they would have answered that question? Of course, we've seen him do all kinds of things. We've seen him make a blind man see. We've seen him make a lame man walk. We even saw him one time make a dead person get up. Sure he can do that. But today it's their situation. Today it's their lives. Today they're in the middle of it. They're not detached from it. And their focus, all they can see is their own inability. Instead of immediately looking to him, to his sufficiency, to his ability to provide, they look at themselves. And they look at their own resources. And they pull out their own wallets and start flipping around. And all they can see is what they don't have. They don't have money. They don't have food. They're completely oblivious to the fact that in Jesus Christ, the man right there with them, they have everything they need. But they can't see it. Because he's completely sufficient for any problem. He is completely sovereign over any circumstance. And they don't even bother to ask him if he has a plan. In fact, they basically just issue him a command. Jesus, clearly you're not paying attention. We've assessed this. It's going to go bad. You need to send these people away. Do you find that hard to believe? After all they'd seen him do? After all they had just recently done by his power themselves, in spite of what he's doing right there concurrently in their midst, they still doubt his ability, and they still question his sovereignty. Have they learned yet? They haven't learned yet. But I wonder about that in my own life. How often have I told other people about the power of Christ to supply all their needs only in my moment of crisis, when it's my neck that's on the line, when it's my life that's under pressure, to be all wrapped up in fear and riddled with anxiety looking at my own self and my own resources and wrangling through the night about what I don't have that I think I need instead of looking to Christ, the one who's all-sufficient and the one who's completely sovereign. It's easy to sort of point a finger at these guys, but I understand this experience, and I bet you do too. I bet if I were to interview you this morning coming in and ask you, do you believe Christ has the ability to to deal with any problem that you face? You would probably answer what? Yes, of course. You're church people. That's what you do. You're here. You're not golfing. You're not fishing this morning. You're in church. If I were to ask you, do you believe he's sovereign over all the circumstances of your life? You probably would have said what? Yes. Because truly, you believe that. But what happens when your life is under pressure? And you go from the 
the observational kind of learning to the experiential kind. Where now it's not just a matter of saying that you believe that, but it's now practicing it. It's now intentionally looking away from yourself and looking to him. And saying, I don't have what I need for this, but Christ, I know you do. So instead of being, instead of being riddled with fear, instead of being, being just, just, just driven by anxiety, I'm going to trust in you. Because you're all sufficient for my need, and you're sovereign over every circumstance. You know, I think if there's anything that I've observed as a pastor, both in my own life and in the lives of the people that I have the privilege of serving over time, it's this. Particularly in our sort of slice of the evangelical world, we've been very good at knowledge in our minds and intellectual theology. But often we struggle with applying that to the real, to the, where the rubber hits the road in our lives. And I go back to Dr. Schiffman's definition of learning, a change in behavior that's consistent over time. If, if what I say that I believe in my mind intellectually hasn't changed my behavior in a way that's consistent over time, I haven't actually learned much of anything. I may know something, but I haven't learned. Have you? Have you learned what it's like to, to trust Christ and his sufficient supply for your every need? Or are you this morning coming into this room even with some kind of fear and anxiety that's just dogging you? Something that's going on in your life right now, in your family right now, in your workplace right now that's got you staying up at night. It's got your stomach tangled up in knots. Where you're looking at your own self and you're saying, I don't have the resources for this and I feel powerless and I don't know how this is going to work out and I'm afraid it's going to go sideways. Is there something like that happening in your world? Are you willing this morning to look away from yourself and to look to the one that you say you believe and see in him the ability to provide every single thing you need for whatever it is you're walking through? Are you willing to take your eyes away from yourself long enough to look to the one who is completely sovereign over every circumstance, even the one you're going through right now? That he has a plan and a purpose for it in the big picture of your life and his work of conforming you to the image of Christ. He's doing something through this. Do you trust in that? Well, these men are going to learn it. And they're going to learn it in a very vivid sort of a way that we don't have time to catch the details, but we'll pick up next time. But he's going to resolve this problem and probably the most familiar miracle in the New Testament recorded by all four, the, apart from the resurrection, the only one recorded by all four gospel writers. He's going to take a handful of fish, a handful of little loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and he's going to multiply and he's going to feed you know, 10, 20,000 people in a really miraculous sort of a way. And he's going to remind them in very vivid fashion that he has all power and that he is all sovereign and that he can be trusted. Do you believe that about Christ? If you're here this morning and maybe there's not something like that going on in your life, think back to the last time it was. For most of us, it won't be very hard to think back. The last time fear and anxiety have had you tangled up. How often do you look to Christ instead of yourself?
How quickly do you look to Christ instead of yourself? Do you really trust him to do what, he, what you say you believe he'll do? Have you really learned what the disciples hadn't learned here? Can we see it in your life? Maybe this morning you just need to quietly respond to the Spirit of God as you're looking, as you're looking at this text, look at your life in, in comparison to it. Maybe you, can, maybe you just need to repent of your, of your self-centeredness, of your, your, your lack of trust in Him, of your, really your own self-trust. Maybe you need to ask Him to give you faith and to help you to trust in His power and His sufficiency and to believe, truly believe and apply His sovereignty. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're wondering, who is this guy? That's what Herod was wondering. That's what the disciples were wondering. And it's what he says in, in John chapter 6. He's going to talk about bread that he's going to supply here. He's going to say, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. I'll satisfy you. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He's God incarnate. He came to live a perfect life, to die on a Roman cross where he shed his blood for your sins and mine. He was buried and he was raised three days later. We just celebrated that on Easter Sunday a few weeks ago. He defeated death and hell and the devil. And if you'll place your faith and trust in him, repenting of your sin, submitting your life to him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says he'll forgive your sin, he'll redeem your soul, and he'll give you eternal life. He is God. Who alone can forgive sin but God? Jesus Christ is the one. Will you look to him this morning? Will you place your faith in him today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for who you are. We marvel at who you are. When we truly understand even a glimpse of who you are, we see the gap between us and you, and it's as vast as an ocean. When I get just a little hint of what your mercy and compassion and love for humanity is really like, I'm amazed. When we see your power and your ability to transform a little bit of food and feed thousands of people, we're reminded that there's nothing you can't do. There's nothing you can't do. There's no problem that we face. There's no situation that comes our way that you are not more than sufficient to provide what we need. And beyond that, you have a track record of never leaving us, never failing us. Help us, Lord, this morning to trust in you. Beyond that, Lord, you're, you're sovereign over time and you're sovereign over all the events in our life. Nothing surprises you. Nothing catches you off guard. It's all part of your sovereign plan to make us into your image. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself this morning, that we might trust in you, truly trust in you. For the one that's struggling this morning, is hurting and broken, and may they look to you and find a merciful and loving Savior who will receive them whatever's going on in their life. It would take joy in ministering to their soul. May the one who's anxious and afraid, Lord, may they look to you and find you an all-sufficient supply for whatever is the need in their life. Help them to lay those things down this morning and look to you and trust in you 
and be free. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.